Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum have been attracting a lot of attention. As an alternative, I used to always say own some gold, own some cash. Now I say own some cash, own some gold, and own some Bitcoin. But the one important detail that's often overlooked, these currencies are energy hogs, and their toll on the environment is only rising, right along with their popularity. The network ultimately consumes as much energy as my home country, the Netherlands. How big is the problem? And what's the solution? That's today on Brainstorm, the podcast about how tech is reshaping our world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Brainstorm. I'm Michal Evram. And I'm Brian O'Keefe. Michal, do you remember back in the fall, we did an episode uh, where we were looking at Bitcoin and the price had shot up. It was headed towards $20,000. And we were talking about whether or not it was a bubble. Brian, do you hear that? What is that sound? That's the sound of bubbles popping. How crazy it was back then. So crazy. And when would it burst? Well, it's gone absolutely nuts since then. And the months since we, of course, highlighted it, the rest of the world started paying attention to Bitcoin. And the price went all the way up to $64,000 or above in April. Of course, Bitcoin always being pretty volatile, it's now plunged down to $40,000 per Bitcoin. The total market cap for Bitcoin is still $750 billion. And even Dogecoin, which started as kind of a spoof of the whole idea of a coin, was valued at $50 billion in the spring, more than the market cap of Ford Motor. Yeah, Brian, you know, in addition to all of this popularity and explosive growth, though, there's also a lot more awareness of just how energy intensive digital currency is. It's estimated that in a year, global Bitcoin mining consumes more energy than countries like Ukraine or Argentina. And that might be why Elon Musk recently did an about face regarding Tesla accepting Bitcoin. In a tweet statement, Elon said last night that it's just not worth the cost of supporting a cryptocurrency that's so dependent, as he said, on fossil fuels and coal. So to go behind Elon's tweet and what he's actually concerned about and what a lot of people are concerned about with the environmental impact of cryptocurrency, you have to understand what it means to mine for cryptocurrency. That term gets thrown around a lot, but not everybody really fully appreciates what it means. So let's hear from Fortune's Robert Hackett, who will help explain. People talk about Bitcoin mining, but they're not actually, you know, digging away with pickaxes and shovels. They're using computers and the computers are crunching numbers basically that allow them to participate in this massive worldwide lottery. And the winners of that lottery, they get cryptocurrency as a reward. Okay, so when Hackett talks about all of these computers and how they're trying to win a massive worldwide lottery, he's basically talking about how Bitcoin transactions are verified, right? So who paid whom, how many Bitcoins, which is recorded on what's called a blockchain. The word says it all. It is a chain of blocks, and each block in this case is a batch of transactions. And the miners are the ones who collect all of those transactions together. It's really just a record of transactions. I mean, it's a fancy way to say a ledger. And actually, the one that solves a puzzle related to the way that the transactions fit together in the ledger the miner who solves that arbitrary puzzle that was invented by Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin, that person gets this reward. 
Yeah, so it sounds really quaint, the idea that you would get your computer set up and you would try to solve this puzzle, win the lottery, and then you get rewarded with a new Bitcoin. But in reality, pretty quickly, it became all about computing power and creating these specialized devices that take tons of energy. All of these computers running behind the scenes sound like a lot of work. And I'm guessing that that's why the system is called proof of work. You're exactly right, Michal. It is a ton of work, a ton of effort for these computers to do all this guessing to win this lottery, and it just soaks up tons of electricity. Our first guest has been tracking this for years. His name is Alex DeVries. He's a financial economist, and he writes a blog called Digiconomist, which tracks Bitcoin's energy consumption. And he says that the more valuable Bitcoin becomes, the more incentive there is to mine it. As these miners are paid in Bitcoins, if the Bitcoin price goes up, they'll be making more money in fiat terms. But that also means they'll have a bigger incentive to add more energy consuming devices to the network. What do we know about where the Bitcoin is being mined, the biggest areas of where it's being mined and the sources of the energy that goes into powering all of this mining? We actually know that historically, up until very recently at, the, at least, uh, they have been primarily located in China, where uh, they have been using uh, the excesses of hydropower during the summertime. That's when it's the rain season in China. And then the rest of the year, they move to the northern provinces of China, the provinces like Xinjiang, where they have an abundance of coal, and then ran on well, that coal-based energy for the rest of the year, which on average left the network uh, with a pretty significant carbon footprint. If you add it all up and you average it out, the carbon footprint that we then get actually exceeds the total amount of CO2 saved from deploying electric vehicles around the world. We're talking around 60 million metric tons of carbon dioxide that this network is responsible for every year. If we were able to wave a magic wand and attach all these specialized mining computers to energy sources that came from hydropower or wind power, would that kind of eliminate the, uh, the sustainability problem around crypto? Or do you think it would still be a big negative growing impact? Unfortunately not. First of all, there is for these type of users, no reason to use renewables because they need not just cheap energy, they need constant power and renewable energy sources tend to be really bad at providing the most constant source of power. If you own a Bitcoin mining uh, device, that device is typically only going to last for one and a half years, and that's it. So there's a very big incentive to just run these machines as much as possible 24-7, and renewable energy sources are too intermittent to be doing that. Let's ignore all that. Let's assume that it's indeed possible to get all these miners on renewables in some way, then still it doesn't fix the sustainability issues of the network because, like I said, you have specialized equipment running all the time. And if that hardware becomes obsolete in just one and a half years, there's nothing else you can do with it than discard it because it, it cannot be repurposed. So it also leaves you with a big electronic waste problem down the line. If you look at it on a per transaction level, a single Bitcoin transaction is already equivalent to throwing away an iPhone 12 mini in terms of equipment weight. And 
you have to consider as well that it will take a whole lot of chips to produce these machines in the first place. So this is also exaggerating the global chip shortage that we have at the moment. Every chip that we put into a Bitcoin miner is one that we can't use for electric vehicles or other personal electronic devices. That effect cannot be fixed by any amount of renewables. So I want to ask you, Bitcoin is obviously the the marquee cryptocurrency that kind of kicked off this whole movement. Ethereum is less well known to the public, but also it's been spiking in value. It's a, it's a different system, but very popular with investors and has different qualities from Bitcoin. How does it differ in terms of energy consumption? At the moment, Ethereum isn't different from Bitcoin at all. It's returning the same proof of work based system. And the only difference is that Ethereum is less valuable than Bitcoin. So therefore, the environmental impact of the system is less than that of Bitcoin. But if they had the same value, then the environmental impact would be the same as well. It does seem like we're in a moment where this subject that you've been following and developing research around and driving a public discussion about has become a public debate. There is a lot of talk about the downside of cryptocurrency. So first of all, you must feel gratified that finally there is a public debate about it. But where do you see that going? Well, this is definitely causing a lot of negative publicity for currencies that are running on a proof-of-work-based system. The only other effect we will see is that regulators will be increasingly inclined to take action against this type of network because they have all committed to the Paris Agreement, they have climate goals to meet, and having a very wasteful uh, high-energy industry like mining on your grid isn't really going to contribute or help you achieve those goals. So. Uh, uh, we have particularly seen cases of coal mines in China being revived for m mining bitcoins. We've seen a natural gas plant in New York being revived for mining bitcoin. We have seen bitcoin miners keeping alive coal-based power plant in Montana for mining bitcoin. So, yeah, that is just incompatible with your climate goals. We need to yeah, we need to stop using fossil fuels, not use them for bitcoin mining instead when they become obsolete. And it is inevitable that the bigger this impact gets the more governments will be inclined to take action. This was very recent that China's province of Inner Mongolia said we're going to throw these miners off our grid. And now the whole country is doing that over the past few weeks. So it's pretty likely that at least Bitcoin mining will not be as big in China. But then the question is, OK, what's going to happen then? Because there's still plenty of other places for them to go that haven't banned Bitcoin mining yet. But those governments would also have to start considering this type of stuff. There's a, a, a selection of different coins now marketing themselves as being less energy intensive. Bitcoin is the brand for crypto. Like that's the brand that everybody knows. That's the most valuable cryptocurrency. But we have a whole range of different cryptocurrencies. And there's some altcoins like Cardano and Nano. Do you think that they will be able to rise to greater prominence based on this uh, you know, environmental backlash against Bitcoin? Well, there's indeed plenty of alternatives to uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum that can already be considered green, except the thing is that the biggest one is probably just several percentages in size as the Bitcoin network right now. And it's not just a matter of size. It's also, you know, the whole ecosystem surrounding it, the development that, that's involved. So even though they may have an advantage in terms of having a greener algorithm, they are at a disadvantage when it comes to everything else that's been already built around Bitcoin.
in his interview, Alex talks about how a lot of this is going on in China. And Brian, I don't know if you've seen footage of this, but if you can just visualize for a second, you've got rows upon rows of enormous warehouses and they're just packed with supercomputers. You've got fans whirring loudly and they're all guzzling electricity around the clock to mine for Bitcoin. A lot of this is being run on coal. And even in the US, this is happening. There are some cases where you've got idle coal plants that are now being repurposed for Bitcoin mining. And this is all happening at a time when we're trying to wean ourselves off of, you know, dirty power sources like coal and turning more and more towards renewables. Yeah. And a lot of the cryptocurrency proponents uh, make an argument that actually the demand for Bitcoin, the rising price of Bitcoin could actually drive more demand for sustainable energy and the scrutiny on this whole sector could be a good thing. But, you know, certainly right now, as you point out, the energy to do all of this mining is not coming predominantly from clean energy sources. The people that are, are setting up these operations are going places where they can get energy cheap, where they can get easy access to energy. And right now, the Chinese authorities are actually starting to crack down on this. And so a lot of this mining is going to probably migrate out of China to other markets. It's probably not going to migrate to places that have world-class clean energy sources. It's going to go places where energy is cheap. There is an alternative here to the entire system, proof of work, and it's called proof of stake. Let's hear from Robert Hackett again. I like to think about people sitting at a poker table and you have to place an ante. You're securing the system based on how much money you are willing to put up and willing to potentially lose. So this is really interesting, I think, because this whole system doesn't involve mining, this proof of stake. The stake here is that you already own cryptocurrency. So if you're looking at it from the point of view of, you know, is this an open process where anybody can get involved, low barrier to entry? It's not. You know, to do mining in the proof of work model that we have now, you have to have a huge investment in computers. In this world of proof of stake, you have to already have holdings in it. From a certain point of view, that's not any better than the other model. But from the point of view of sustainability, because it doesn't require all this crazy electricity demand, it is better. Yeah, Brian, there's clearly more and more interest in proof of stake. That's where at least some currencies are heading, including the second biggest cryptocurrency in the world, Ethereum. And then there are also currencies that were really just founded on this model, and that includes ADA. Our next guest is Frederic Gergard, and he's the CEO of the Cardano Foundation. Cardano is basically the organization behind ADA, which is, again, a cryptocurrency that runs on proof of stake. So what is so truly unique about Bitcoin and the systems which is built on what we call proof of work is that this is the first time in the world that we have the ability to trust data and know that I mean, the best example is if you have an apple, a physical apple in your hand, and I will give you that physical apple. You would not ask me the question of, is it your apple? You would not ask me the question of, I had the permission to give you the apple. You would not ask me so much because it's an apple. You're familiar with an apple. It's just exchange from my physical hand to your physical hand. We don't need Uncle Tom, who's a famous lawyer, to come and validate this transaction, which we actually did, and all those things. We don't need a legal contract and so on. But if I would send you that apple through an email, you would be like, hmm, 
how do I actually get the apple? And is it actually Fred's apple? And is he allowed to send that apple? And how many people did he send that apple to before he actually did that? And where is the legal contract and where do I actually claim my apple and get that out? So when we move from this physical world into the digital world, a lot more questions is happening. Do you, by the way, always use Apple as your example or are there other other goods? Oh, you, you can like? use whatever you want, right? <laughs> it's just to make it super simple, right? Because Very what's interesting is if we kind of start thinking about your salary or if you start thinking about gold or if you start thinking about a house, right? Then suddenly we actually start using a lot more intermediaries to kind of help us in this. Suddenly we actually need Uncle Tom, who's a lawyer, right? And suddenly we actually also want to have the bank involved. And suddenly we might need to have a third party to lend us some money. And, you know, there's a whole process who comes in because the, the, the value suddenly becomes much larger. And if we move that into the digital realm, right, we suddenly don't trust anything anymore because the internet, what it really does is just, just copy paste everything. So every time we send an email, the email is not physically gone and there's only one version of the email. It's actually still stored on multiple servers on its way. To basically ensure that this is not happening, we need to do something which was really magical, which is to solve a whole area of problems. And that's actually what proof of work basically does. So it ensures that mathematically it proves that if I send you something digitally, I cannot send that to anybody else. So there's a mathematical proof who actually does that. It also ensures that I had the right to do that. So I had some kind of an identity, a validator, and when you have it, you then have the ownership of it and you can send that on to somebody else. To do that, what it has to do is it has to link the previous transaction with the previous transaction and it rounds that off into blocks. What then happens is when you start thinking about millions of transactions, this data sheet becomes extremely big. And to check that when I send you this Apple or this gold, digital gold, that I haven't spent that before, what it basically does is it checks all the previous transactions. And as you can imagine, when that's billions of transactions, that suddenly requires a lot of computing power and it requires a lot of electricity. And Fred, everything you just explained, this is proof of work, right? Voila, yeah. So Cardano is actually what's called a proof of stake blockchain. So we actually went around solving this mathematically different. So what we're saying is that it's not about how much computing power you have, but it's about randomly distributing the right to a, what we call a stake pool operator to basically sign off the transactions. This random distribution is a different way of looking at security than actually you know, keying everything together. So it also creates a different incentive. But it, for instance, means that we are around 1.6, 1.8 million times more efficient from an electricity perspective than proof of work. It means also that we can do, you know, up to in the end of the year, we are expecting to do 1 million transactions per second, uh, which is, it doesn't say you a lot, but this is really a lot. So then you can actually do more transactions than Visa card and so forth, which is really important for us because we are targeting also developing countries like Africa and South America and so forth, right? So for us, it's really important that everybody has access to this infrastructure. So in essence, you can think about it, if I cut it really short, we've solved the security problem dramatically different with a different mathematical algorithm, which is not dependent on computing power and the amount of electricity goes into that, but with a random algorithm who assigns security differently. Therefore, it's a, it's a much more green approach if you think about electricity compared to the computing result. 
than proof of work. So Fred, would you mind clarifying though, because I think I have a pretty good concept, rudimentary concept, but pretty good concept <laughs> of proof of work at this point. You did a great job explaining that. Explain to me the life cycle with proof of stake, because I'm still not clear there. How are you ensuring the same level of accuracy and security if you're not actually going through those billions of checks and seeing each and every single transaction? We are actually doing some of the same steps, but one of the largest steps which is in there is the incentive model. What we've done in proof of stake is we looked at it differently and said, oh, it's not about actually having the most computing power, but it's actually about having trust and it's about randomizing it. So we are still checking the data in the same way, but we are not using as much electricity to kind of safeguard and actually solve this mathematical equation. And that means that you have to do what's called a pledge. So you have to put some, in our case, you have to put some ADA aside, which is on your pledge account. And then everybody who owns ADA has the ability to give you as a stake pool some of the ADA. So it's not giving it, it's called an IOU. So I give you the staking keys, the rights. So I believe in you as a stake pool operator. And the more ADA you have, the higher likelihood that you will get the reward. To then ensure that you are not getting into this centralization aspect, we cap that at a certain level. That means that we don't have somebody like, a, I don't know, like a billionaire coming in and just, you know, killing the whole system and we only have one stake pool out there, but we're actually ensuring this distribution. I know it gets a little bit mathematically and game theory heavy, but think about it like that. It's, it's not just about centralizing and, and, you know, ensuring that the richest people have the best benefits to get rewards. You basically have this bell curve who basically does the opposite. Okay. Just to clarify, ADA is the currency. Yes, Okay. It sounds to me like part of what makes what you're doing more sustainable, more, you know, hopefully environmentally friendly is that you have, like you said, changed some of the incentive structure. It's not just a technological difference, but it's at its core, it sounds like the incentives are different. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. Okay, I'm going to ask you what's going to sound like a very basic question. Sure. I'm just curious, today, can I use ADA to, to buy things? Can I buy an Apple with ADA? <laughs> yes, you can, actually. Um, it, I would say it's not the primary use case, but yes, you, you can definitely do so. Uh, yeah, you can also book a hotel and, and you can do certain things. We are not by far not the largest cryptocurrency, but we are also not focusing on being the largest cryptocurrency. The ADA is actually the entry to this operating system. So yes, you can actually buy an Apple with it. Yes, you can do certain things with it, but uh, you can also give money to a charity. And way more interesting, you can actually also start proving that the money you give to that charity is ending in the right place and other things. So yeah, there is a real utility you can do already today. You know, it's interesting because having this conversation about cryptocurrencies actually makes them so much more real and tangible in my mind because it's always felt like this thing that's like out there in the ether, you know, and now we're talking about the very real environmental impact that this has, that, you know, Bitcoin mining has. 
and the compute power involved. And in a way, it's really a testament to the massive growth that crypto has seen because, you know, we wouldn't be talking about this otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all this talk about mining cryptocurrency for a long time, it seems so abstract, as you're saying, almost like a video game, you know, like who can win these little games and get coins. And real mining is really destructive, really takes a toll. And that's really what's involved here, that kind of process to provide the electricity to make this work. But if the Ethereum Foundation, the group that runs this cryptocurrency, makes this move to proof of stake, that would be a huge, huge milestone. And that would probably reduce the footprint, energy footprint for this massive cryptocurrency by more than 90%. And that might actually have a huge ripple effect across this industry. All right, that is it for today. We'll be back next week with more talk on how tech is reshaping our world. The Brainstorm Podcast is a production of Fortune Media. Our show is written and produced by Wyatt Orm and edited by Nicole Vergala. Music is by Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds NYC. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Mm-hmm.